28 through to verse 36, but in, in some uh, matter of introduction, in case you haven't been here in prior weeks, what we've seen is that Jesus has been prophesying in response to the question of the disciples, in response to what he said about the temple and the structure and the old system that was going to be torn down and punished for their rejection of the Messiah. They said, when's this going to happen and when will the world end? And Jesus is in the process of answering both those questions. When will the temple be destroyed? And today we're going to come to the part where he's going to be talking about the final coming of himself in judgment as we just read in the creed as all orthodox Christians believe and must confess that Jesus will come back bodily, raise us from, raise the dead, uh, give glorified bodies to the living and assign us to heaven or to hell, a glorious and terrifying day that will be. But we're going to be in verse 28 and I invite you to follow along with me as you look in your own Bible as I read this last section of the book of the chapter of Mark 13. The word of God, the one true and living God reads like this. From the fig tree, Learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and that hour, No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, precious, authoritative word in our midst this morning. Well, we've been coming through this chapter and, and we've been seeing that Jesus is giving the, 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 the warning to be ready. And we're going to see, see two warnings this morning. He's going to say on one hand, a warning, be ready because you know when I'm going to come back in judgment on Jerusalem. There's a sense in which he's saying, you will be able to tell the signs of the times, so be ready. And then he's going to end with a warning saying, now be, 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 be warned again this time because you don't know when I'm going to come back at the end of the world to wrap this whole thing up. So, so in both instances, on, on one case, they're going to be warned to be ready so that they can escape the, the temporary judgment. And then also be alert because you don't know when I'm coming back, but be alert, stay awake, hold fast to the teachings so that you can escape the eternal judgment. So look first over at verse 28 through to verse 31. In this first section, we see warning number one, the warning to be ready, because they do know, they could know when he would return in that judgment spiritual sense. 
And he tells them to look at the fig tree. He says, from the fig tree, learn the lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things uh, taking place, you know that he is very near at the very gate. So it's quite simple. He's simply saying, you are uh, in an agricultural uh, 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 culture. You know that when you look at the tree and it starts to change the color of the leaves, the shape of the branches, the fruit starts to come out, it's very obvious to you that a a broader, more all-encompassing event is occurring in the world called summer. Well, it's also going to be the same case that as you see all these things taking place that Jesus has just been talking about, so the abomination of desolation or the Roman armies coming against Jerusalem, or it's going to be the the wars and rumors of wars, or it's going to be the the famines and the earthquakes, and it's going to be the false Christs and the false messiahs. While the gospel goes out, there's going to be persecution. When you see these things taking place in your mind, know that the broader, overarching, more, 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 more great and grand situation is at hand, which is the tearing down of the old physical temple in preparation for the growing of the church of Christ. That's what we've been seeing so far. So he says here, that that's pretty simple, verse 28 to verse 29, zero controversy there. Jesus is just making an analogy. You'll know what's happening because you can see the signs I've told you about. The controversy comes, or the, the disagreements come, and, and so far through this passage, I've been, I've been giving to you what is called a partial preterist interpretation of the scripture known as the Olivet Discourse. In other words, it's my reading, as I've been showing and teaching from this, that, 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 that Jesus has been speaking so far about those events that would surround the destruction of the old system, the temple, and Jerusalem in AD 70 under the Romans. However, there are other, some of you hold this, some of you know about other, uh, other readings, some of us don't know exactly what we believe. However, it, it's obvious to us all, there is different ways to read this passage that read this as, 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 of course, some of us will read it as, as being future to us. This is end of the world language throughout the whole passage. The wars, the rumors of wars, the, the tribulations, the, the, the persecutions, the, the false Christs. That's all talking about a period towards the very end of history. And we're brothers and sisters here. And some of the, the readers, as they comment on this, this book of the Bible that I'm reading week in, week out, some of them hold to that position. We're all brothers and sisters here, and you're welcome if that's you. Others will take it to mean that this is called the historicist interpretation. They're saying, no, 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 what, what Jesus is saying about wars and rumors of wars and false messiahs and heretics and persecutions, that's just him describing what the whole history is going to be like between his resurrection and when he comes back. Back again, it's not particularly about any moment in time or event in history. It's just the whole lot. Also, brothers and sisters that we love, that I read, that I appreciate, but I disagree with there. Others will take this to mean uh, 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 more of a, a spiritual, idealist sort of reading. In other words, they, these are not events that Jesus is, is prophesying. They are just ideas and spiritual truths and realities that are going to unfold in the spiritual realms over time. Uh, uh, while I don't hold to those prior ones described, the way that you read verse 30 is a key interpretive paradigm for how you interpret all the events we're talking about. So look at verse 30. Jesus says, 
Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This becomes an interpretive key. How you understand what Jesus is saying will inform what you think he has been talking about when he says all these things. Which generation is he talking about, or what does he mean by generation? Some will believe that the language of this generation, he, he means the human race. The human race will not pass out before my prophecies are fulfilled. That's one reading. Another reading might say that this generation means, means this race of people, the Jews, will not be destroyed before my prophecies are fulfilled. Others will say that this generation means this type of generation, the, the adulterous, the unbelieving, the, the hard-of-hearted generation will not pass away. There will always be this type of people around until the end comes. Others will take it to mean that, that when he says this generation, he means that generation that he has been talking about at the end of time, that generation won't pass away before these things take place. I hold, and I'll, I've got five points to make here, I hold that what he means though, while all of those are orthodox, all of those are held by people sitting in these pews, while they are all within the, 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 the realm of orthodoxy, of Christian belief, it is my position that what Jesus is saying here is the generation he is speaking to. The generation he is a part of, the, the biblically speaking 30 to 40 year period is a biblical generation. You remember when they were, the Jews were, were in the wilderness for a generation so that that rebellious group of people would die out and their children would raise up and we all know that the wilderness wandering was 40 years. So Jesus is saying, this generation will not pass away before the things that I have just described take place. Reason number one is because in the context of Jesus' language through Mark 12 and 13, but specifically even more fully in Matthew 23 and 24, because they are, they are synoptic gospels, they have very similar chapters. In Matthew 23 and 24, what Jesus says is that all these things, these woes, these punishments, these, the, these horrible things will come upon this generation. He's speaking about the, 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 the leaders. He's decrying their hypocrisy, their theft. They're their, 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 their putting up with all sorts of sins and power hungriness and desecrating the, the, the holy things. He's doing all of that, twisting the word of God. That's Matthew 23. Woe to you, woe to you. Your house will be left to you desolate. This generation, upon this generation shall all these things come. That's Matthew 23. So that as we come through the next chapter, this language, I think, is cased in the same pointed direction. That he's saying this generation being the same generation he was just cursing a chapter ago. Secondly, when Jesus says this generation in the book of, of the Gospels, he is, uh, 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 he is rebuking that generation with whom he speaks. So we have examples that Jesus uses throughout the Gospels. When he says, this generation will be judged by Sodom and Gomorrah because they had a prophet and you have the Messiah and they repented and you didn't. This generation. That language isn't true of all generations or of a certain race or type of people or the human race, but that living group of people will say again, the queen of Sheba will rise up in judgment because she saw Solomon and you saw Jesus. You didn't repent, she did. He'll say the same thing. This corrupt generation, he says, this adulterous generation seeks a sign that none will be given it except for the sign of Jonah who was in the ground for three days and then came out. So also the son of man will be in the ground three days and then come out. He says this generation will see that sign. Again, uh, the language of the people alive in his day is my reading of those texts. Thirdly, 
Jesus cases this language, this statement of this generation won't pass away with pointed, explicit, veracity, truth, truth claims. So look at verse 30. He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The, the language of truly there on the other Gospels, truly, truly, is the strongest way to emphasize a, a, a something that he is saying. He's saying, this is true, believe what I'm about to say. Everybody agrees with that. I'm not, I'm not unique in my reading there. We all believe Jesus is speaking the truth. However, then he uses the, the, the strongest way to negate something. So he says, truly, truly, by no means in the Greek. A, a double negative put together to drive home emphasis. So here's, here's where I'm getting at. Every reading, and maybe you're, you're far down on this side compared to me, and you believe this is all future or some future or all history or all symbolic in the spiritual realm. Wherever we stand, every single one of us finds ourselves at one point in this discourse, or it's in the book of Revelation, where we hit something and say, now that seems literal. It sounds like he's saying that's going to look like this. However, to, to understand the rest of the text, that needs to actually be symbolic or, or spiritual, still happening but in a spiritual realm, something like that. Every single one of us has to say at some point, this verse or this verse or this picture or this beast or these uh, stars falling to the ground, something has to be symbolic here. It can't all work if it's all literal. Now, here's my hermeneutical key. You can disagree, you can take it and run with it, do what you wish. This is mine. I either have to symbolize the prophetic hyperbole of language like heavens being shaken, stars falling to earth, cased in hyperbolic language, or I symbolize what Jesus says when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is extremely important, and here is my truth claim, which then he backs up with, my words will not pass away. Hold fast to what I have just said. I either have to symbolize the truly, truly, this generation language, or the other language of, of cosmic upheaval and destructive language. I'm, I'll, you know where I stand, that's where I'm landing, that this generation was referring literally to the generation that he spoke to for those reasons, <coughs> as, as, as I've just outlined. So, so that's verse 30. People will interpret that differently, meaning they interpret the whole discourse differently. But I've put forward mine. So in verse 28 through 31, his point is this, that there is a, uh, I have given you the warning to this generation that this generation, within this generation's timeline, before people right now living pass away, these things that I'm telling you are going to happen. It, he says, my words will not pass away. They will not fall flat in, in ineffectiveness, even though, even though the world may. The world can be uncreated. My words cannot be uncreated. This world can be destroyed. My words cannot be destroyed. In fact, it is my words that uphold the entire universe. Isn't that what Hebrews tells us? So, so Jesus is saying here, whatever you take this, this, this prophecy to mean, mine is to say that he is speaking to that generation. He is saying, believe it. Do not be those Christians. Do not be those disciples. Do not be those people who, who on reading Christ's promise of, of whatever he says, that his word works, that he saves sinners, that he can save you if you trust in him. That he can redeem whatever situation your family has found itself in. That he can use you for his glory. Whatever it is that Jesus says, 
Pick one of those promises and prophecies. Do not be those who say, I hear the promise, but I look around or I look within or I see what is around me and I have reason to doubt the promise. If you trust the earth that you walk on to be there tomorrow when you wake up, then trust to a superlative degree more so, infinitely more so, that Jesus' words will not pass away. His promise to forgive anyone who comes to him. His promise to be with us by his spirit until the end of the Great Commission age. His promise to fulfill all that he has prophesied is not dependent on how the world looks, on how strong you are, or on how well your Christian life is going. It is cased in the unchangeable, immutable nature of God himself. That is what Jesus is telling them. And we look forward now to verse 32. Through verse 28 and 31, what he's been telling them is, warning, warning, this is all coming. Therefore, flee when you start seeing it happen. When you see the wars and the rumors of wars, know it's around the corner. When you see the false Christs and messiahs, know it's around the corner. When you see all of the persecution rise up, start getting ready. And then when you see the Roman armies come around, as we said last week, then it's time to run to the mountains for the temporary judgment is coming upon this generation. But the second point now he's going to be speaking from verse 32 to verse 37 is... Not flee because you know when it's happening, but be faithful in the long term. Be ready, stay awake, work hard because you don't know when I'm going to come back in this final time to give out rewards and to give out judgment. So that, that's what he's, he's now speaking of. Now, when we look at verse 32, I see here a transition passage. This is going to be one of the last technical bits here, if you will, if you will uh, uh, bear with me. One of the last technical arguments I want to make here in verse th- uh, uh, comes from verse sort of 32 and onwards. Uh, there is an argument that this, this is not speaking about a different day, but in fact Jesus is still speaking about when he comes back to judge Jerusalem. Other people will see that this is all one big unit speaking about the future. Let me tell you a few reasons why I believe this to be a transition passage. A transition passage where Jesus goes from speaking about the destruction on Jerusalem for their sins to speaking about his coming back for the final time. His reason, number one, is because he stops making time stamp statements. Where Jesus has been saying immediately then after that, or in those days, or then in the day following that, he's making all these timestamp statements. You'll see this, and then this happens. You'll see that, and then this day occurs. He stops doing that. And rather what he says from here on in, in Mark 13, and from at this point in verse 36, I believe it is in Matthew 24 onwards, he's, he uses no timeline statements. He uses no timestamp points. He is simply speaking about the nebulous, unknown future in general. Number one. Number two, he, he, makes, he has just made a concluding statement right before he says this. In verse 30 and 31, he says, Truly, truly, everything I've told you, it's all going to come to pass. And here's the, here's the concluding bookend. My words will not pass away. And then he moves into a Greek transition point. That you, it, it's sort of in the Greek, it starts out a new thought, new material, or a new paragraph. Comes out in English as, but concerning... Paul does it all the time in his letters. It's, it's the way of starting a new idea or argument. So that's uh, second reason. Third reason is because he, he goes from speaking of this to speaking of that. 
He just said, this generation won't pass away before all these things take place. And then he says, but concerning that day. In that day, a far off day, and yet we don't know exactly when it's going to be, the unknown day of unknown timing. He's speaking of the final day. He also gives no specific event details with no opportunity to escape. We know that as he's been saying so far, he's saying his specific events that will occur and you will be able to escape them if you can see the times. There is no such language of his second coming. He's never, he, he does not say, and then before I come back the second time, these events will occur, here's what to look for, but you can escape it. There, there's no language of that. We have a, a changing of the material, whereas now he is saying, the day will come upon you like a thief in the night, like a master coming back at a time you don't expect, and you won't be able to run. There will be no fleeing. There will be no escape from Christ's second bodily coming when he wraps up the created order. And seven, his warnings change from the warning against deception in urgency, as he's been saying so far. There will be liars. There will be false Christs. Do not believe. Be alert. All of this sort of immediate, urgent language ending with him saying, flee to the mountains when it all comes climactically. Whereas the language from here on in verse 32 onwards and in Matthew's gospel after that transition passage stops being urgent and focusing on don't be distracted, don't be lied to. And it goes to long-winded, long-term faithfulness and readiness in hard work. So that where one is saying, this is urgent, this is important, look out, now he's going, I can come back at any moment, at any time, you don't know when. And when I come back, I don't want to find you fleeing I want to find you steady like a farmer at work, like a servant in the household, serving the purposes, propagating the purposes, investing the talents. You all know that, uh, the, that parable, investing the talents of what the master has left you with. So they, these are the reasons why th- this is a transition passage in my reading. And so from now what we will see is the application of the day that not even the son knows the date of. He's coming back. The second coming of Jesus Christ will be glorious. He will be seen. And John says, as we see him, we will be made like him. As he comes back in glory, so also we will be resurrected into glorious bodies. As he comes back in his body, our resurrection will be bodily, not just spiritual. We will be made perfect like him in sinlessness, in incorruptibility, in immortality. That is what the New Testament refers to as the blessed hope of the Christian. We do not believe that this world is just uh, sort of uh, an accidental explosion and it's in some kind of uh, a continual phase of entropy and one day it'll wind down, cease to exist and explode into some other kind of expansive future. No, friends, what we have is a blessed hope that the God who created this world created it with a purpose, that that God who cursed the world at our sin cursed it with a purpose, Romans 8 tells us. He cursed it in hope. The God who has sat enthroned above the world all these years, controlling and and directing history, has done so with a direction and a hope. And the day that is coming is Jesus coming off his throne to our midst, us being raised, the world being judged, and the meek inheriting the earth. Those who have believed in Jesus inheriting a new creation that is unfallen, uncursed, glorious and blissful for all of eternity. Are we waiting for that day or what? That is the blessed hope of the Christian. 
And it is of that day that Jesus speaks now. So he says, uh, of that hour, no one knows. No human being at the time of Jesus saying this knows that hour. In fact, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, not even Jesus in his humanity knew the day that was coming, but only the Father. What we see here is Jesus' voluntary submission to what the Father reveals to him. We hold, as we have just read in our creed, that we believe that in Jesus, the God-man, there is two natures come together, and yet they do not confuse or mix or lose their respective properties. That Jesus did not have to avoid or ever, uh, uh, he, he, never had, he never lost the feeling of being hungry simply because he was God. He dealt with his hunger by eating food because the human nature did not lose its property. The divine nature did not lose some of his power, glory, or his knowledge when he became a human in the God-man. Rather, what we see here is Jesus, as the Messiah, as the incarnate God-man, he only knew what his father revealed to him. Some things, everything that Jesus came to know, he learned. In other words, everything that Jesus knew, he at one point did not know. Jesus, we should not think of Jesus being born as a baby with his full knowledge and all of his human faculties with him as a child while he's with Mary, as he's being born, as he's raising up. He was not pretending to learn his language. He was not pretending to learn the doctrines of scripture. He learned them perfectly as a perfect human mind would, but he had to learn. He did not go from sinful to perfect. He went from perfect yet not fully grown to greater and greater perfection until he was ready as the high priest and lamb to be laid upon the altar for our sacrifice. Jesus was perfect, always the true son, always the true God, and yet he, his knowledge touching his humanity was limited to what the Father told him, and this includes this. Now, now here's why I would labor this point so much. It's John Calvin that makes this point. That, that if Jesus, in his incarnate state, if the God-man is okay with not knowing the day that is coming, we should also be okay with not knowing the timing and the date of the day that is coming. Listen to Calvin as he says it like only Calvin can. He says, a man must be singularly mad. We'll be a bit egalitarian this morning and offend everybody. A man or woman must be singularly singular. That's it. I'm trying to insult people's intellect, and I do that. That's on me. A man must be singularly mad if he cannot submit to the, stop it, to the ignorance which even the Son of Man himself did not hesitate to endure for us. The Son of Man submitted himself to endure a certain level of ignorance. I don't know when that day is coming. Now, if we get into ourselves some kind, of, some kind of madness or pride or arrogance that says, well, Jesus could go without knowing it, but I ought to know. Or if you ever meet somebody who claims to know, give them the right hand of fellowship and say goodbye. No one knows that day or hour. They are mad, crazy, insane, maybe possessed by a demon if they claim to know the day of Christ's coming. And therefore, we have application. 
The lesson is be faithful. Let's read again his, his parable, if you will, and then move on to his application. Note how many times he says something along the lines of stay awake, be alert, do not fall asleep. He says, it is like, he's speaking of the kingdom age, the, the age of between Jesus' resurrection and his coming again. It is like a man going on a journey. This is like Jesus going up into heaven to rule and reign from David's throne at the right hand of the Father. That's like him going away on a journey and leaving his, uh, he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge. That is, he puts his disciples, his faithful children in the church in, in, to work in the Great Commission, to do what he has commanded. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work. I love that. As we think of kingdom-mindedness, each with his own work. That we should not strive to do other people's work, demand that other people do our work, not be jealous of other people's gifts or callings or opportunities, but serve our master Jesus with the work that he has given each of us to complete. There is no such thing as running out of work to do. If we are each filled with the Spirit, zealous to work hard, and refuse to make excuses because the coming of Jesus is around the corner at any moment, then no one will ever be short of work to do for the entire life that we have on earth. There is work to be done, still billions unsaved, thousands and hundreds of thousands of churches needing planting and many in need needing serving. He puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, that's one watch of the night, uh, sort of as at dusk, or at midnight at 12, or when the rooster crows at about 3 or 4 in the morning, or in the morning at uh, about 6 or so. So he's given the four watches of the night. You don't know when he'll come. He could come at any point, verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. This is one more reason that I believe that what Jesus is saying here is not just referring to one generation then, but to every generation, because he, he closes it out by saying, disciples who I'm talking to about my future coming, what I say to you now, pass it on. Write it in the epistles. Put it in the gospels. Preach it in your churches. Let all be told to stay awake for the day that I am coming back. And that is why we find in James, in the passage we'll read tonight, in Peter, in Paul, constantly the, the, the urgency is that the coming of the Lord is at hand. It is at any moment. There's no more events that need to happen before he can come back and give us our rewards and our judgment. Therefore, there is an urgency to stay awake. Here is our lessons of being faithful as we uh, see them from verse 33 to verse 37. I think there's multiple ways that we can fail to stay awake. The first is unbelief. The first way to fail at being awake, at being alert for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is unbelief. And there's, there's different types of unbelief. There's, there's the kind of cultural, maybe political, maybe, maybe, maybe a, a, a useless kind of faith that a, a Christian might have, that, that they identify in some way as a Christian, yet they do not believe. They have an unbelief that Jesus really is coming back. They are not word-based Christians who say the whole world can pass away, but my master's words will never pass away. This is the, the cultural Christian, the nominal Christian, who live as if there is no true urgency of Christianity. 
There really is no judgment to come. I really can tick the box of being a Christian on the census and live my life outside of church, outside of submission to the Word of God, and live it how I wish. To that person, Christ commands, wake up. The day is coming. Your days are short and your time is near. Be alert. Stay awake. Repent of your sins of normalcy and of nominalism and of lack of belief in what Jesus says. Grasp onto the cross by faith. Receive his forgiveness and his spirit and get to work. But there's another type of unbelief that is the person, maybe right here this morning, who is just not even a Christian. They don't believe the most fundamental things that you must believe to be, find, to be found in heaven on the last day. You don't believe the most fundamental things that you're required to believe to be a Christian, which is that Jesus, the God-man, was sent to this earth to die on the cross under the punishment, wrath, and condemnation of God to free us from our sins to free us from the punishment of our sins, to liberate us from enslavement to sin, to give to us his spirit, to forgive us of our sins and bring us into his family. This is the gospel, that Jesus, the God-man, died in our place and for our sins to make us one with God, fill us with his spirit, and when we die, we go to be with him forever. That is the gospel. That's what you must believe to be a Christian. And not believing that is the sin of unbelief. And to you, Jesus would say, be alert. Wake up. Let your soul awake right now and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Because when he comes back, there is no second chances. You must believe before his return. So that is the sin of unbelief. The belief that he is not coming. The master is not returning. His journey is eternal and he will not come back. The second type of sin surrounding this is the sin of unfaithfulness. The sin of unfaithfulness that says, if he comes, he will find me in my sin and that doesn't matter a whole lot. That he, he may come back and when he comes, he'll find me doing whatever I choose to be doing because I have a life, I get to choose my lifestyle, I am Lord of my life. He gives me things like forgiveness and an and, and entry into heaven. And as far as the lordship over my life, he is not concerned. I am not concerned about his rules, his ways, and his lordship. Maybe we, we, we are involved with church and Christianity in as much as we think we should be as people who believe in him to go to heaven, but we do not mind being fruitless. We do not mind having nothing in our, in our train as we come to Jesus. I, I just want to remind you that though we believe in a grace-based salvation that is entirely of God's compassion and mercy through Jesus, and though you receive that mercy and grace and new life in Jesus by nothing other than your faith, which receives it like an open hand. You don't buy it. You don't give anything to God to tip the scales. While that is the truth of Christianity, we are told strongly in Scripture that God wants us to have a fruitful day of reward on Judgment Day. In other words, God wants to go through your life with you, find all the things that you sacrificially gave, the things that you sacrificially served, the things that you, the way that you spoke to people in their time of need, that you spoke Jesus Christ, the way that you spoke to and raised your children, the things that you did with your investment and your time. He wants to be able to look through your life and give to you eternal rewards that will not die out. 
Store up treasures in heaven, Jesus says, that will not be eaten by the moth or be rusted. That should be our life. There is no legalism in a disciplined life of trying to earn rewards in heaven. And it's my job as a pastor to make your reward day the greatest day possible. And therefore, stay awake, stay alert, and be hardworking. Know that the Lord Jesus has, has infinite gifts and rewards to give if you will just be busy. Do not be found unfaithful like the servant in the house that says, if he comes back, he'll find me doing what I'm doing and let it be whatever it is. Do not be that Christian, that father, that household leader, that mother, that sister, that friend, that Christian. Do not be that person that does not care what rewards are given to you in glory. Jesus commands that we care. The third type of sin, as we think about the, the, the coming of the Lord Jesus, is an unhealthy obsession. You've all met that guy. Or you've been that guy. We all have that uncle. The unhealthy obsession with Jesus coming says this. He's coming, and I need to know when, and I need to know how, and it always becomes... And I think I do know when, and I think I do know how. It always happens to just be the most obsessed guy that happens to get a revelation from God or happens to do all of the maths as you add together the pages of Scripture and the numbers of the chapters and the, the number of teeth that Abraham had at his death and the number of sheep that Moses owned. I'm literally not making that up. It's in, it's in the text. People believe you can add it all together, find the day of Jesus' return. The healthy response is to laugh. There is an unhealthy obsession with this, and we tend to think, we sort, sort of tend to put people in a box like that and give them a commendation they don't deserve, maybe even ourselves, if this is you. We say, Jesus is coming. I'm obsessed with his second coming. I'm a kind of second coming obsessed Christian. And the rest of us might go, yeah, yeah, you know what? He's that guy. He's just got the capital on the second coming. He's the guy who really cares about Jesus coming back. And I guess um, maybe I'm not an eschatology guy. I'm just a sort of different Christian. I'm a, I'm a work hard Christian or I'm a, I'm an ecclesiology Christian or I'm a soteriology Christian. You know, this guy's got down pat the end of the world, the second coming of Jesus. He's obsessed and I sort of, I'm just not like that. Don't, don't think that way. I've heard it said, and, and I love the way it was phrased, the person who is most and rightly obsessed with the second coming of Jesus is not the person who speaks about the second coming of Jesus. It's the person who serves heartily in the church and works in the Great Commission. Because never are we told about the second coming of Jesus and encouraged to do some maths or newspaper reading or other silly things like that. We are told when we think of the second coming of Jesus to get busy, to work hard, and to obey the commands that he left us with while the master left. So we've seen the three ways of sinning here is unbelief, he's not coming unfaithfulness. If he does come, he'll find me doing what I wish. The unhealthy obsession. He's coming and I need to know when. And the unfruitfulness. He's coming. And as long as he can take me with him into heaven, I don't care about anything else or who I can take. The, to all of these things, Jesus says a hearty, stay awake, be alert, pinch yourself. You know what it's like to be dozing at the wheel or falling asleep in the middle of a conversation? Not a sermon. 
Or maybe in a car ride or maybe in a movie that you pay good money to see and when you know yourself drowsing and you can feel yourself dozing off, you put your fingers over your skin and you pinch yourself or you slap your leg or you put that ice cold can of Coke onto your thigh. You do something. You do something to wake yourself up. Let, let me encourage you this morning to go home and ask yourself, how much have I been dozing? Do I need to wake myself up to the reality of human suffering, of the eternities of hell, of the power of the gospel? What, what sermon do you need to listen to? What scripture do you need to read? What reality do you need to put in front of your eyes to wake yourself up? Jesus is coming at an hour we do not expect, and we want to be those who welcome his coming and his arrival. As 1 John 3 says, act in such a way that when he comes, we will not be in shame. Therefore, what we should have is a fruitful, trusting faithfulness. A fruitful, trusting faithfulness that believes that Jesus died for sinners. That Jesus was raised by the power of God. That he now reigns at the right hand of God. And just as he did not fail to fulfill his prophecies on Jerusalem and his judgment in that temporary way on a generation, so he will not fail to punish and judge anybody that rejects his word, that refuses his gospel, that opposes his lordship. If we are trusting in these things, then we will be fruitful and faithful in the knowledge that heaven and earth will pass away, but the gospel has power to save. That we will take this gospel to every one of our friends that does not believe. That we will take this gospel to every corner of the globe and every part of our city where Jesus Christ is yet to be submitted to as Lord. And we will trust that it will glean a harvest. That the gospel has the power of salvation that God works through to bring people into his kingdom. We will not trust useless humanistic uh, 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 ideas or plans, but we believe only the gospel, which imparts regeneration to souls, brings freedom from sin, and the gospel, therefore, is the weapon of the church. That is what we trust. God speaking powerfully through his gospel, through his church. He is coming back. We don't know when, and we will be found fruitful. So, so Christian, the, the question is this. Have you fallen asleep, and do you need to wake yourself up? The reality of Jesus' second coming, let it spur you on to fruitfulness and faithfulness and trusting the promises of Jesus. And if you are not a Christian... The one application this morning, before you consider anything else, is have you believed in the gospel of Jesus? Have you stopped trying to work for yourself into heaven and come to the cross of Jesus where, where God killed his son in your place, where your sin was punished in somebody other than you? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus to be enough to bring you into heaven because of the power of his blood and the perfection of his life and the richness of his love and grace towards you who don't deserve it? Have you trusted Jesus? Trust him now. Trust him today and be forgiven, be freed, be filled by the Spirit and your life will change. Your eternity will change. Your heart will change because your Lord has changed from self to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow and pray together at this moment. Father God, your word has come to us from the mouth of Jesus and the pen of, of Mark. We thank you for, the, for what it says we thank you as we acknowledge the, the differences in interpretations or opinions or readings on, on this passage, and yet this holds true. 
as we approach it all with humility and, and the ability to continue to learn and the freedom to change. And yet, Lord, we hold fast these core unalterable messages that Jesus is the Lord of glory who died and rose who will judge everybody when he comes back. And so it is to him that we owe our obedience. It's to his words that we have to pay attention. And when he tells us to believe in him or be condemned, to believe in him and have eternal life, pass out of death to life, then Lord, we listen. And I pray that there are, there are hearts this morning, Lord, that do not bend their, their knee to Jesus. They do not believe in his gospel. And I pray, Lord God, that at this moment, you would give them the faith to believe that Jesus has died. He has died for their sins and he can forgive them. Would you give them that faith to believe that they are forgiven in this moment by trusting Jesus? And us as a church and all the, the future generations that will come out of this church and the future church plants that will go out and the missionaries that will go out and the pastors that will be trained, Lord, let us have in our ministry, in our work, in our life, in our employment, in our family, in our friendships, in our fellowship groups, an urgency. That as Jesus' return draws near, we want to be found fruitful in loving one another, in preaching the gospel, and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name who has loved us and died, died for us and rescued us from our sins by his blood. The name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.